I think from a contemplative Christian perspective, from the perspective of one who prays the Lord's Prayer, you could say from the perspective of the religion of Jesus, because this was Jesus's spirituality expressed in the Lord's Prayer, there's no such thing as self-help. It doesn't exist. The self cannot help itself. So I've been thinking about this question that keeps coming back concerning the Lord's Prayer. You raised the question, Jakob, I believe, in one of our dialogues. Don Carveth raised the question as well. And recently, Brian James, in the conversation I had with him on his podcast, raised the question. And it's a question concerning this sentence in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Praise to God the Father, not to lead us into temptation. But to deliver us from, but deliver us from evil. And the question is, what kind of God would lead us into temptation? And there's a Jungian line on this, which is that this is a God who is part devil. But I don't think that this Jungian interpretation is correct. I think it misses the whole point of the prayer. And so I thought we could talk about that because it brings us into the question of. Jesus and his, what we call, call his faith in other power, his faith in the grace of God. There's another translation of that phrase, which is, do not put us to the test. So Jesus prays to the Father, do not put us to the test, but deliver us from evil. And I think that's probably a better translation. It certainly will get at something somewhat different from the idea of a God who is part evil. It's the context that is crucial here, the context of the whole prayer. The Lord's Prayer is really a series of statements that, that entrust the prayer, the one who prays, entirely to God. All the power is God's, and we depend upon God for everything. And I think that the, the, the prayer is summed up in the conclusion which was added by the church, apparently, which is a phrase taken from the Old Testament that was probably added to the prayer that Jesus himself made, but which we know because we say it, those of us who still go to church say it every Sunday, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. This doxology was added by the church in her wisdom, I should say, the church understanding the ancient church what the sense of this prayer really was. The passage is actually taken from the Old Testament where King David prays, and this is in Chronicles, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Let's forget for a moment about the church putting words into Jesus's mouth. Anybody who knows anything about New Testament scholarship knows that these texts are composed on the basis of fragments, historical fragments, and interpolations by editors. And this is something theology has to wrestle with, but it's not what I wanted to speak of, actually. I wanted to speak of the wisdom of the church in recognizing that the whole point of the prayer is turning to the Father and acknowledging all the power, all the glory in the Father, nothing in us. The prayer, in other words, is a declaration of human poverty. 
it's a rejection of the philosophy of human potentiality. It's a rejection of the assumption that we've got it, we can do it, if we can only get our act together, if we can only discipline ourselves, if we can only obey the rules, if we can only meditate properly, if we can only stop doing this or that or the other thing, we'll get it together, we'll earn the love of the Father. When the disciples ask Jesus how to pray, what Jesus tells them is cultivate in yourself the thought of human poverty. Spit out this other idea that you could do it on your own. You can't do anything on your own. And we get to that phrase then where, where Jesus says, don't put us to the test. The whole point of that phrase is not that we should think of God as a devil who wants to trip us up, but rather we should think about ourselves as people who are incapable of passing tests. Jesus says, do not put us to the test, but deliver us from evil. And I think the but is crucial there. You, Father, overcome the evil in me and in the world. I can't do it. I do not will to be the one who can pass the test. I'm not the one who could overcome evil. You're the one. I am a child, Father. I am a child and I depend on you absolutely. So, yeah, so Jesus abjures in this sentence what Shinran, the Buddhist sage, Japanese Buddhist sage we spoke of, what he calls self-power. Jesus abjures it. He renounces it. He empties himself of any claim to power and entrusts himself absolutely in other power. And he says that this is how we should pray. This is the attitude we should cultivate in our prayer. And since we should pray all the time, this is how we should think about ourselves in relation to God as beings who are incapable of redeeming themselves, of even doing good, but who nonetheless can become conduits of goodness through the power and only through the power of God. So this got me thinking about self-help and the myth of self-help, at least from a contemplative Christian perspective. Self-help is a myth. This is an important point because so much of secular, Christ, secular Christianity, secular religion gets caught up with the self-help industry, just as Jungianism has been in some way fused with the self-help industry. Self-help is everywhere. And I think from a contemplative Christian perspective, from the perspective of one who prays the Lord's Prayer, you could say, from the perspective of the religion of Jesus, because this was Jesus's spirituality expressed in the Lord's Prayer, there's no such thing as self-help. It doesn't exist. The self cannot help itself. Either we will just, we just remain who we were. You know, we could spin this in a very pessimistic way. Schopenhauer speaks of, of the myth of self-help in the 19th century, although there was no self-help industry, but uh, there was, of course, an enlightenment philosophy of human betterment and progress, which he thought was complete nonsense. And he spoke about how people have this fantasy that they are developing their personalities and they're changing and improving and getting better and better every day, when in fact, they just end up with the same personality that they started with. Mm. 
you know, that's a pessimistic way to look at it. You could look at it psychoanalytically too. And I think, Jakob, you probably agree with me that consciousness of neurosis, which is something that comes out of analysis, does not make us unneurotic. Or as Jung says, we become, we don't get rid of our complexes so much as we become beings who have complexes rather than complexes having us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, but Jesus, of course, is not a pessimist. He's not saying, oh, we're just stuck with our, our, our sinful selves to the end. There's no hope for us. He says, on the contrary, good things are happening all the time, and they're not the result of self-power. We are helped from something, someone outside of us. That is, any good that occurs to us or through us, any development, any growth, and for Jesus, any life in the world, anything that happens in nature, any progress, at all in the natural order as well is a result of grace of other power so i think this is this is hard for us to grasp i I think we are deeply committed to the myth of self-help in our in our culture and this is a difficult teaching for us it's 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 i think the decisive it's the decisive critique of the new age there's nothing wrong with new age, the new age search for a new way of, of being connected to the universe and to the divine. There's nothing wrong with the new age quest for wisdom in the traditions of the world. There's nothing even wrong with the new age agenda of creating your own spiritual path out of a variety of things. All, all of that is fine and good. But there is something wrong with this new age self-help industry. We'll never come to know Christ nature or Buddha nature for that matter, so long as we remain bound up with this myth that the self can help itself and therefore ought to help itself. And the other side of that is that if the self is in trouble, it's its own damn fault. And if you listen to Peterson, that's exactly what he's saying. You know, stand up straight, your shoulders back, do good, slay dragons. I happen to have seen the ad for his new some new series. I don't listen to him or watch him anymore, but some new series popped up on, on my YouTube and I looked at it and this is exactly what he was saying. He said, he was saying, you know, slay the dragon, do good. And there was a threat there. The threat is if you're, if you do poorly, if you're unhappy with yourself, it's your own fault. Get off your, get off your arse and fix yourself. Now, there might be people who are sick, who need to hear something like that. You know, there's something called ego structure, a sufficient ego structure, which needs to be attended. So this deep teaching of Jesus is not for people who lack sufficient ego structure to be able to negotiate their ordinary lives. But the problem is, is that this insight of psychotherapy has become a religion. And building ego structure has become the goal of a normal spiritual life. This was already happening in in the early Freud movement. As you know, the eco-psychology that Anna Freud initiated, where the whole point of analysis was to build up the ego and defend it from the id. But it's especially prevalent in our pop culture. So I have this water bottle in front of me that ended up in my possession somehow from Good Life Fitness. And their logo is Believe in Yourself. I don't think a contemplative Christian 
can subscribe to that and remain entrusted to Christ's nature. And I also don't think a contemplative Buddhist can, can subscribe to it. To think about the context for this, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Jung, you know, he speaks not about motivation, but he would speak about the heroic myth, no, the myth of the hero. And he would probably say that in the first half of life, it's really important to develop that quality, to lift the stone, to clean your room, to go out on adventure and fight and build a strong ego. But you might come to a point where you, you might reach, you know, a passage or, or, or an impasse where, where, where that type of attitude no longer will serve you. So the quest for second half of life would be more, and I think second half of life can happen much, much earlier today. It's more a psychological disposition would be to, to give up or, or, or to let, to become a follower of, of a self or to become a follower of, of Christ or to become a follower of, of, of something absolute that is not yourself. Many people need Jordan Peterson's message. It might fit them very well. It might, I think it's very important. And it might also introduce them to, to reality in a way that's really, really the work of the father. And, and, and Jordan Peterson is a father for many of these people. You touches upon that, that it's also important to, uh, the hero will also die or, and, and a new journey will start. Yes. I don't think Jung is an eco-psychologist. And I think Freudians need to be, this needs to be explained to Freudians who have, who misunderstand, well, particularly Lacanians who despise ego psychology and who misunderstand Jung as an ego psychologist. So I, I think all that you say there is correct. And I, I definitely agree that there are people who need to hear this. And perhaps this is who Jordan Peterson is speaking to, but he's all, he's got millions of viewers now who, and he's become the spiritual guru of many, many people. And I just wish to actually underscore that, you know, just as we spoke of individuation not being the end of the road, well, building up ego structure, not only is it not the end of the road, it's not even, not even the beginning of the road. Mm. Building up ego structure is just basically becoming a functional person. And at that point, everything begins. So we need to, we need to be clear that these deep spiritual traditions of the contemplative religions, particularly Buddhism and Christianity, they, not, they should not be confused with psychotherapeutical techniques of building up ego structure or self-help. And I think that they have been, they are confused in pop culture. Mm. So for example, and, 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 but, so, so this helps us understand the deep connection between Mahayana Buddhism and contemplative Christianity. Buddhism has the teaching of no self. Anatta. You've well, got to be also, ready for this deep teaching. It's also the kenotic move, no? I mean, this also has to do with kenosis. It's, no? the, it's the kenosis of Philippians. It's the self-emptying. But the, 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 if, we, if we if we think about the Buddhist figure for a moment of Anatta, it was the Buddhist objection to Vedanta. And in Vedanta, there was the doctrine that Atman is Brahman, that the self is divine. And the Buddhist answer was, there is no self. Now, I think that this deep teaching of anatta is not for everyone. I think you've got to have sufficient ego structure for this no self teaching. So we need, let's say, psychotherapy, and maybe we need, some of us need Peterson's paternal advice to stand up straight and do good if we're in a, if, if we don't have sufficient ego structure to practice, practice a contemplative life. But once that's in place, we've got 
to, we've got to put that ego in its place because it too quickly fuses with atomistic individualism. That is the individualism of our degenerate liberalism. And we end up with slogans like believe in yourself. You know, for me, nothing is less worthy of belief than myself. It's, we end up in a completely uncontemplative mode. And what's dangerous about that is that we will become somehow lost. You know, Christ's nature is everywhere. It's ubiquitous and it's always victorious. But we're not going to enjoy it if we're locked in the myth of self-help, if we're, mm-hmm. if we're wandering around thinking that it all depends upon us, whether for good or for ill. For example, we can spin this one way. We can say, well, you know, my discipline and my practice is what's going to bring me to the higher consciousness. Mm-hmm. And you can also spin it the other way and say, you know, my, 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 my vice, my sin, my perversions, my failures, my imperfections. Oh my, you know, I, I'm just such a slob. I, and you, you remain, you, there's a monkey on your back following you around, making you ashamed of yourself. Both of these are founded on the false assumption that the self is the agent of its own transformation. This all makes sense to me, and I'm just speaking of Jordan B. Peterson. I think what I already shared in another conversation, we had the statement that I heard or read that I thought sort of just nailed it and just underlining what you say. You know, again, there's no grace in the Christianity of Jordan B. Peterson. Or, or maybe he's open yeah. up for that. And then you said to me, yes, grace is everywhere. It's, and that's not against him as a person. And it's, it's difficult to talk about grace. Going back to where you started with the Lord's Prayer, Maybe I'm going out on deep water here, but I have a sense that there's also this myth going on about why, or I ask you, why does God have to be all good? I'm just saying, you know, I come into Christianity not being raised a Christian through my own journey, through my own analysis. I came in through it through suffering, I guess I could say. I came into this. I, I was drawn into this. And to me, having read my Kierkegaard, it's nothing strange that that a God would also be a hard teacher or, you know, the, the concept of a fear of God, we, we speak very little of, but it seems like there's the, the discussion of the love of God or the problem that people seem to have in, in understanding that love is not the only sort of quality or that fear of God, there's a deep tradition around that that I wonder if, if it's important to speak of, not in order like Jung, in order to try to implement a force within the Trinity or say that Satan is Jesus' brother. I don't believe in that, but I believe in the stories. And I believe in what we spoke about with, with, with Carveth. It, it, it's in the scripture that God sends the devil. And have, being someone who read also, besides Kierkegaard, a lot of Luther in the last years, I don't have big difficulties with that. But I think there might be a danger also in, in always reducing God to all good or all love. Most people that I meet that come in contact with Christianity, it's not because they want to. Oh, great, I'm going to become a Christian. It's like, it's like something you're drawn into, like, you know, cat, you want to be avoiding it. But, and and it's, it's usually through despair, or at least for, 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 for sinners like me. I, I couldn't agree more. The way I would sum up the point is that we don't know what goodness is and we don't know what love is. So we can call God good and we should, 
but we shouldn't presume that we understand what that means because this goodness is compatible with the KT extinction event, which wiped out all life on planet Earth. This goodness is compatible with all kinds of atrocities and horrors. So we don't know what it is. And what, what disturbs me, however, in the way Jung spins this in answer to Job is that he elevates human judgment above God. And this, this, is, the, this is exactly what, this is the, exactly the wrong conclusion to draw from our incomprehension of God. God is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, according to Hugo Otto's phrase concerning the holy, this the tremendous and awesome mystery. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it, Jesus is full of this fear of the Father, as well as his trust of the Father, the right kind of fear of the Father, the awesome, awesome, terrible mystery of the origin of everything. God is reality, so he, he, he's completely beyond our petty moral compass and our little flawed and self-centered sense of what's good and what's bad. So I, I, I would say the proper conclusion to draw is that, you know, in terms of any, any sense of good and evil that we can understand, God is neither good nor evil. And yet we have to trust ourselves entirely in them. And you're absolutely right. This is something terrible and terrifying. And you need, you need sufficient ego structure. So I guess you do have to stand up straight and get your shoulders back first in order to enter into, this, into, into, this, into the presence of the living God, the God that, who was so terrible to look at. Nobody could look upon him and live. Nobody could see the face of God and live. I think we talked about that. That's, that's in the Mosaic Revelation. So once we've got sufficient ego structure, what then? Well, then we begin our contemplative practice. And here, here I think I've got to distinguish Christian contemplative practice from other spiritual practices. Because in other practices, one practices in order to transform oneself. But we've just said that this is not a possibility for a Christian. So what's the point of practicing? The point of practicing is to create you know, through natural techniques, if you like, the peace of mind to enjoy the gift of grace, the ubiquitous presence of God. Grace is not a ray of light that God every now and sends into our life. Grace is the presence of God, the infinite presence of God everywhere. So it's everywhere. It's always victorious. It's, it's what causes the flowers to grow. And yet we walk around in some kind of bubble, narcissistic bubble of shame and, 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 and egoism uh, and uh, are, are completely oblivious and unhappy because of it. So we practice to attune ourselves to what's going on around us. That's the, that's the only point of practicing. There is no other point. That's the point of meditation. That's the point of spiritual reading. That's the point of solitude. Not to make ourselves into God or to transform ourselves or pull ourselves up from by our own bootstraps, but to tune in to the glorious splendor of the radiance of God shining in all things, everything contained in God, everything from God and to God. And so we enlarge our, we, we break from our silly little concepts, what's good and bad and who God is and who we are, and just let God uh, be the reality that he is now and forever. Nothing has changed in reality by this attunement. It's just a question of enjoying the presence of God, which is the reason we were created. We have no other reason to be. 
We are only there, we're only here to enjoy the, the splendor, the bliss, and the beauty of God. That's why we practice. And, and, you know, sometimes through our practice, grace will become particularly effective, but often it has nothing to do with practice. You know, for me, it seems to be when I go and really screw up, you know, go to a dinner party and drink too much and wake up with a hangover, then I, set, then I remember the Lord's Prayer. And I remember that the glory, the power, and the kingdom is, is yours forever and ever. So nothing depends upon me. And therefore, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans whether or not I can control myself in such and such a context or whether people admire me or whether admire me or whether I can count my virtues, you know, none of that matters at all. Our vices are actually wonderful, wonderful teachers in this regard. And with this thought, the scriptures just open right up. So I'll just toss out a couple passages that I love. Romans 7:19. Listen to what Paul says. The good which I want to do, I fail to do. But what I do is the wrong, which is against my will. And what I do is against my will. Clearly, it's no longer I who am the agent, but sin that has its lodging in me. I cannot do the good thing that I want to do. And Paul doesn't say, so I better get my act together and start meditating and praying and fasting so that I can become, you know, adequate to the good that I want to do. He said, on the contrary, rejoice that you don't have to do it, that you are saved through the power of God to the other power. And none of it has anything to do with you and your ability to transform yourself. If you take that passage and you, you read it against Galatians, where Paul has this phrase, which I think is an expression of Christian non-duality, Galatians 2.20, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. It's an amazing phrase. I live now. So there's, an, there's the little ego, which has sufficient structure to be able to name itself. I live now, but actually this little ego that I've just named is really not responsible for very much of anything that's going on because it's not the ground. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Through this miserable little ego, this silly little personality, I'm actually becoming, through the grace of God, a Christ man, a Christ woman. So, you know, this is so close to Shin Buddhism. I'll just introduce one further concept, which is the concept of Jinen, Shinran, J-I-N-E-N. Jinen, it's a Japanese word. It's like many of these Japanese terms, it's just an over-determined symbol. It's loaded with meaning. So here's Shinran explaining what it means. Ji means of itself, not through the practitioner's calculation. It signifies being made so. Nen means to be made so. It's not through the practitioner's calculation. It is through the working of the Tathagata's vow, through the working of the vow of Amida Buddha. Know, therefore, that in other power, no working is true working. Spiritual people need to hear this over and over again because we're always falling into self-power. We're always falling into this delusion of thinking that everything, that, that, that anything, that something depends upon us being disciplined and 
following the rule and being nice to people and so on. Nothing depends upon that at all. It's not about loving yourself either. It's not that there's another pop culture distortion of this truth. It's not about loving yourself. It's about becoming the foolish self that you are, which is how Shitvan puts it. Become the foolish self that you are. So the doctrine of anatta in Buddhism doesn't mean that you don't have a silly little ego following you around and, and tripping you up at dinner parties and becoming deluded by its own fantasy sense of what it can achieve. That's going to be with you forever. And it doesn't need to be removed. It's, it, it's a, it just needs to be recognized as of no consequence. In fact, nothing other than a medium of other power. And as such, something wonderful. So become the foolish self that you are. You know, praise God for your foolish self, because it is this foolish self that is the medium of the grace of God. God has willed this foolish being into existence so that he can be glorified through it. And so for you to desire something other than the foolish being that you are is for you to desire something that God doesn't will. In the last episode or the episode before we spoke of the, you were, you were comparing the Metatsu Christi with the Christ nature. And I'm just wondering then if all we have to do is to sort of hope to receive grace and empty ourselves. Not that that wouldn't be extremely a lot of effort. What, what, what is, you know, the example then of, of Jesus and what about charity and what about the other? Isn't there a risk also in this contemplative tradition to completely miss out on all the good that, you know, Christianity has created in yes. regards to community and relationship and love or... It is, it's, called, it's called quietism. And, and it's also something that Paul deals with because he finds that his, his teaching has met with this misinterpretation that people are now sinning because grace abounds all the more if they sin. I can do whatever I want. And the Gnostic, Gnostic Christianity got mixed up in this too. And then Paul says, no, 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 that's not what I mean at all. Uh, and it's not what Shinran means either, that, you know, become the foolish self that you are. doesn't mean you now kind of indulge yourself. And, you know, it means rather that you allow yourself to become the conduit of goodness. You don't, grace is always there. It's always victorious. It's not, you don't have to wait for it. It's always there. And the one thing that obstructs it is this presumption that you can do it on your own. So to become the foolish self that you are is to become a being actually that through the grace of God occasionally achieves something good, but it's not your work. And the first thing to do when you notice that something good has occurred, that you've actually done, you've helped somebody or you've done something charitable or you've overcome your selfishness. Oh no, apparently you have not acted out of, you never overcome your selfishness, but you've, uh, you, you haven't acted out of selfishness, but you've acted out of love. You say, glory be to God through me, through this foolish self, goodness is being achieved. Call no one good but the Father, Jesus says. Why do you call me good, he says. I'm not good. Any good that I do is the work of the Father. That is the, 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 the mystical heart contemplative Christianity. And I think it's, the, it's also the center of Shinran's Buddhism. Of course, we don't speak about God. We speak about Amida Buddha. We don't speak about grace. We speak about other power. But becoming the foolish self that you are is for the sake of the letting this, the, the light of the Buddha shine through you and in you and in everything. 
It's well, just I... getting out of the way. Mm. Well, this might be- That's uh... what the practice is. Practice is just getting out of the way. We get practice out. to get out of the way as a light because we're always standing and blocking it. Just going back to, to, the, to the Lord's prayer again and, and, and the, the temptation or, and, and, or what you said, the test. Maybe this is a, too general of a question, but, but could you speak a little bit about what, what the temptation is or what the test is? What can you say about the test? Well, you don't have to put me to the test. In other words, don't test me to see if I'm adequate to you or if I'm a good person or if I can withstand the evil forces in the universe. Jesus is an apocalyptic thinker. And all apocalyptic thinkers regard the universe as somehow you know, a place where evil is permitted to rage. You know, this is impersonal, transhuman evil. And don't put me to the test of, don't test me to see if I'm the hero that can slay this dragon. I'm not. In other words, you know, God could, if God willed, leave me to my own devices. Don't do that. Because I don't want to be that one. I just want to be the one through whom your power, your glory, your, your splendor works, shine. Do not put me to the test. So in the philosophy of human potentiality, the spirituality of human potentiality, we, lo we want tests, right? We want to, mm -hmm. through the tests that we achieve, our, our, our heroic uh, new the philosophy of human poverty, Mahayana Buddhism, and contemplative Christianity doesn't want tests. And when we fail the test, we don't get bummed because we never presume to be one who could pass it anyway. We're never surprised by how, how miserable and how selfish and how small we are because we never expected much more from ourselves anyway. So the, you, you don't want to spin this the other way and become kind of morose. That's an, just, just another kind of pride, obsessing on, on your, your sins. I think I think Jung is very good on this when he speaks about integrating the shadow. I, for me, this is the the deep Christ, Christian meaning of shadow integration. It's not about you know the shadow is nothing. There's nothing heroic about the shadow, as Jung says. It's like it's, it's all the it's kind of embarrassing little things that you find hateful in other people, and you can't you can't look at it yourself in this light because you have a fantasy about yourself being better than that, and only in the in the recognition of how morally incompetent you are most of the time can we only then will we dissociate from this fantasy ego ideal which is preventing genuine individuation and psychological growth yeah i'm thinking of of, of the humility you know of that work or shadow integration as a as a process of, of yeah humiliation at times, but also humility from the same word, and somehow that it, it seems like today at times, at least in pop culture, that shadow integration has become also part of the same narrative of sort of let's just yeah bring this yeah, not, into me so that I can bring it out into the world, while it's more maybe as James Hillman also like to say that it's not about growth. The only thing that grows after a certain age is cancer. It's about shrinkage and that individuation yes. with finding the right size in relationship to, to these forces, to these forces. That's, I love that. It's not, after, after a certain age, the only thing that grows is cancer, is that what you said? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, it's about shrinkage. I think that's fantastic. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But the, but again, these are deep teachings, and they're not for every stage of life, and they're not for all people. 